Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon is Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention. The next event is scheduled for June 24th through 26, 2002 in Norman, Oklahoma. However, they need your help to put on the next event. Please visit SoonerCon.com to find out how you can help make SoonerCon 30 a reality. The Hellmouth Convention The Hellmouth Convention is a celebration of all pop culture, but specifically things like Buffy, Angel, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. It is held in Los Angeles, California, and the next event is scheduled for June 3rd through 5th, 2022. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship Fund. For more information, go to thehellmouth.org. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today we're welcoming Stefan Reese, and he and I will be talking about many iconic images in the history of video game art. I'm going to ask you to pay attention at the end of the episode for a chance to see some of those images up close and in person. Let's get started. On tap today, we have Stefan Reese. How are you doing, good sir? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing all right. Now, you are... You are a name in retro video games for many reasons. You have a, a media resume. You are a podcast enthusiast and talent. But the reason I got a hold of you was that you have a Twitter account called The Art of Nintendo Power. That's me. And Nintendo Power, okay, for the younger people, you used to get a magazine in order to figure out what was new in the world of video games. Mm. And for the really younger people, there used to be these things called magazines. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's definitely uh, a reason why I, you know, it, it, the art of Nintendo Power isn't just an, an imprint on Twitter, right? It's also an exhibit. I run a 501c3 nonprofit uh, called the Interactive Art Collection. Um, and it's a essentially a traveling art museum focused on on the video game industry and and more particularly some of the lesser known corners of the game industry like the art of Nintendo Power like uh, Nintendo gameplay counselors that kind of thing um, and so uh, definitely one of the big drivers that gets me out there is uh, is how how Things like mag- print magazines, things like call centers didn't really make the cultural transition, right? So there are, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put on a gameplay counselor exhibit and I'll get kids coming up to me going, I don't understand why they didn't just Google it. Or what is a call center? Or, you know, and, and when I present uh, the art of Nintendo Power, which is I'm actually uh, presenting production materials and original artwork from the magazine, um, there are a number of people who just don't understand how print magazines were made, right? Prior to Photoshop, prior to the the digital era. So that's that's you know it's it's a funny joke to say, haha, I don't understand why I didn't just Google it. But like there is also a cultural need to explain to folks, uh, you know, how these different things were actually produced. Sure, yeah, it's you know it's like we joke that you know people don't understand how you know, how, you know, why people didn't just Google things or, you know, that kind of thing, you know, leverage the internet. And like, there is legitimately a generation of people who just don't understand life prior to digital. 
Um, and so that's one of the, the big drivers that kind of gets me out there is uh, is wanting to educate people on this piece of of the game industry that is just people just don't there's no cultural awareness anymore. I don't know. You'll probably know before I can even look it up. But I remember looking through one of the earlier issues of Nintendo Power, and there was just a spot there where you could actually see the graph paper underneath whatever layout they had set up. Like, I guess somebody had just not filled in that particular spot, and it mm. went to press that way. And it was like, oh, oh, wow, somebody missed this. And it's the kind of thing that you didn't really think of until it was right in front of you. And I wonder how many people missed that. Sure. Or like when they do when, you know, when Nintendo Power would show level layouts, right? They didn't have any like way to have the engine display uh, these levels. So they would take screenshots with a traditional camera and literally stitch them together. So if you do look at uh, maps for any of the Mario games or like Mega Man's a big a big one because because the levels are so big. Every screenshot somewhere in there, you'll see Mega Man. So like on these big long, uh, on these big long maps, you know, every every couple inches, you'll see Mega Man standing there because they didn't they couldn't remove him from the engine. Uh, and so that and that's how those maps were made. I have a a Dragon Warrior map uh, that is the the overworld map for the original Dragon Warrior game, and the artist took something like 500 Polaroids and cut them up. And and plastered them together, and then took a photograph of that, and that's the Dragon Warrior map. And if you look at the published version, you can actually see the seams, like like water color variations and stuff like that, where where you know the flash or or whatever um, didn't quite match up from from image to image, and so it's very clearly stitched together. And it's that dovetails nicely into why the art of Nintendo Power is such an interesting topic because they did so many unique things with the cover art, with the layouts. They would bring in sculptures and they would do collages and action figures and paintings. And you never knew what you were going to get from one month to the next. Sure. Yeah, I have. A, it took me actually an obnoxiously long time to hunt them down. But when they were doing they were covering one of the Sesame Street games and they just used they photographed keychains. And uh, so I went and I had to hunt down these particular keychains of Big Bird and Grover and and Cookie Monster. And uh, and yeah, I mean, they just they they used what was, you know, what was handy sometimes. And there were always those times where you just had to ask why they would do things a certain way. And uh, do you ever get into those conversations as to the people who made it actually can say, yeah, this is why we had to go that route? Sure. And most of it, uh, as you might imagine, uh, most of it almost always comes down to either time or budget or both. Um, so, for instance, the the famous uh, Castlevania two cover from from issue number two, um, where they uh, have you know Dracula's head. Well, the Dracula's head was it was just a Halloween mask of Dracula, right? Um, and the and the guy that was supposed to be Simon Belmont was clad in a you know a a Halloween store like rental costume. So sometimes it was just a hey we have very little budget and we have very little time to go to press and that's that's how a lot of these earlier earlier pieces were done and there were so many cases where again people be doodling illustrations in some cases and i i imagine they didn't have a a huge artistic staff compared to some other publications at the time um they did but they were very but it was varied 
So they had a small internal staff, and then they had then this this is the earlier parts of the magazine. Eventually, like during the N sixty four era, they actually brought everything in house. But mm-hmm. uh, but in the in the early I don't know first five years, let's say uh, I'm making that up. <laughs> but uh, but they uh, they had a small internal staff, and they had uh, a small staff in Japan. Uh, so they had an American internal staff, an, a Japanese internal staff. And then they also had uh, freelancers that would come in because there was just so much art that needed to be generated so quickly that the the headcount that they that they had wasn't enough. And then additionally to that, um, they had a, the front and back covers were done by an ad agency as well. So they outsourced that to a completely different set of of artists. So that's why you very seldom to never, I'm trying to think, I hate saying never, but I'm trying to think of an example where a cover artist also did interior art. Um, I think maybe maybe towards the end of the magazine or uh, the end of the traditional art for the magazine they, they did, but certainly in the early days, you wouldn't see a cover artist also doing interior art for the magazine because they were contracted by completely different companies. Like you... Uh, the art for the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game was just something that it was a, a turtle design that you just never saw anywhere else. And at that time, the turtles were everywhere. I mean, and you had the same turtle art all over the place. And that art was so distinctive. Again, well, that that's art, why that art was actually from a Mirage artist. So that that's Mike Dooney's art. Um, and that was the yeah, that was the cover for the reprint of issue three. I want to say issue three or four, um, but yeah, so that was an internal Mirage artist, and that was Mike Dooney that did the art for the original NES cover. Um, and uh, and the the big like weird thing about that was that, or weird to the kids was that uh, the that art since it was from the Mirage comic, um, mm-hmm. they were all wearing red masks uh, as they did in the original comic book uh, because it was a black and white book. It didn't matter what what their <laughs> what what color their masks were. So, uh, so yeah, that, that, that piece was, uh, from, from Mirage. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Cause it all, just the, the style of it was just always so radically different than anything you would have seen on in the movie, the cartoon and uh, the comic books were, I mean, I, I didn't read Turtles comics till much later at, at that time. Yeah. Mike, Mike did mostly covers for, for the Mirage run. Yeah. Okay. So how did this project come about? Because the, the fact that you can tour these places and show this off and get a, a crowd is exciting to me. Sure. Um, so it started with, uh, originally I collected video games, like just the retail stuff, right? Then I I was a, a big set collector. Um, and after I'd amassed a collection of nearly 10,000 games, um, it occurred to me that what I was doing wasn't necessarily difficult. It was just expensive, right? There were most of these games, there's, you know, a minimum print run was 10,000 for the NES, right? So there's, uh, you know, a handful of games. So for someone like me who really enjoys the hunt, I wasn't really getting that anymore out of my hobby. And so I I started looking around. I was like, okay, well, video games are, are not difficult. What's what's in that same vein, but more difficult. And so then I started collecting uh, retail displays like signs and and uh, and point of, point of sale displays, standees, that kind of thing. These fine gentlemen behind me here, uh, stuff like that. And uh, and again, I got to the point where, OK, this is harder, but but 
still, there were tons of retail displays for most of these. You know, there was lots of targets and lots of KB toys and lots of, you know. So I was like, all right, this still, I've, I've now that I've got what I want out of this, you know, I, I, I have the fiber optic signs, I have the statues that I want, I have all that stuff. Again, I'm getting to the point where it's not that hard. It's just expensive. And so I said, okay, so what is genuinely difficult? And this kind of coincided to a point where I was actually flipping through uh, Nintendo Power number one. And there was an ad. The The first page of Nintendo Power number one is an ad for the power line, the, the gameplay counselor hotline. And they all have these jackets on. And they're, they're, they're not actually counselors or they're actors, but but uh, but they're wearing gameplay counselor jackets. And I went, I said to myself, I wonder if those exist. Like, I wonder if the jackets actually exist. And so sure enough, they do. Uh, and my quest to uh, to find those jackets, and I don't know if you can see, no, you can't, but anyway, they're, they're in the display case down there. Um, but uh, but there were a number of gameplay counselor jackets. And uh, in my quest reaching out to various gameplay counselors, um, I ran into a gentleman uh, that didn't have any of his gameplay counselor stuff, but he's like, but you know what I do have? I, you know, after I was a gameplay counselor, I went and I drew for Nintendo Power and I still have some of that art. Would you be interested in that? And like at that moment, my brain exploded. Like it had never, it never occurred to me <laughs> that that was something that you could collect, that that stuff would be out there to find. Like I'd never, it never dawned on me that that could possibly be the case. And so, Yes, I was very interested. And that's what kind of got me, sent me down this path of collecting art. It was really the intersection of something I absolutely love with something that's really, really difficult to find, right? And that, so it, it scratched both of those itches. Like I was getting that nostalgic vibe. You know, I think what, what's wonderful about the magazine is even, even pieces for games that I'm not nostalgic for, I'm still nostalgic for that art because I loved the book, right? I loved Nintendo Power. So like, the the dark for instance the darkwing duck uh nes game not the best right it's okay not the best i don't have a nostalgic love for that game but i do have a nostalgic love for that cover i have this visceral memory of pulling it out of the mailbox that particular mm -hmm. issue and seeing the cover of darkwing duck so while i don't have a tie to that game i i love that art right and so that's been that that's what really kind of got me on fire for this is that it was it really scratched that nostalgic itch that i that i wanted just from collecting but then also it was this 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 paradigm of that plus plus something that's really really difficult to collect um and that that's sort of what sent me down down this path when you're setting these things up what kind of venues allow you to come in or, or are eager to have you come in uh, mostly retro video game conventions. That's the big okay. one. Um, sometimes galleries, but generally a gallery is like a, a for-profit thing. So they want they want art that they can sell, and this art is not for sale. This art is 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 willed to my own 501c3, um, and so it's not going anywhere. Like I am a black hole for this art, essentially, right? Like as far as like uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't buy and sell this art. Occasionally I'll find art for something else, like, you know, uh, like a, a video game cover or something like that. Like as I'm looking for this art, uh, you know, I'll, I'll find an artist that like did Nintendo Power stuff, but then also did other stuff, right? And so generally I'll just buy everything from them, right? As a kind of a lump sale. Um, and then I can use those pieces that are not Nintendo Power related to trade for other stuff or to fund other stuff that is Nintendo Power related. So, uh, but so, but generally, by and large, I don't 
uh, buy and sell art. And so uh, so that usually kind of crosses uh, galleries off the list unless I'm like paying them for the space. Right. If I'm like, OK, like I'm just use, I'm just renting your space, then then I can do a gallery showing like that. But uh, but generally it's retro gaming conventions and, you know, they are you know, it's 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 the, the perfect clientele. Right. Like that's it's definitely my people. Um, and this is something that I don't do. I don't charge for this at all. Um, part of that is just because I don't want to. But then uh, part of it is also that uh, I want to steer clear as possible from any potential like you know nintendo is very litigious let's just say it and mm-hmm. so i just i i i want to steer steer clear and we've had a couple conversations me and their legal department um enough to sort of like set some boundaries right um and uh but uh for by and large i i just don't want to mess with that at all so and and not charging money is a great way to do that right so that's actually why i started the 501c3 one of the big reasons is so that other people could help fund my exhibitions all of the art is is self-funded i, bu- I buy all of the art specifically i do that for very particular reasons but like donations would pay for you know uh preservation efforts so like uh like framing or like uh you know travel and you know uh, hiring headcount if i needed help at a show you know that kind of thing that that's what donations go towards um but uh yeah, so that's generally it's 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 retro gaming conventions is my my bread and butter. Although you know I'm 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 sort of stuck right now because of COVID, but that's changing really soon. So or it seems to be changing really soon. Fingers crossed. So um, so yeah, because the the last time I actually got out, I've done a couple like virtual conventions and and talks like that. Like I did Long Island Retros um, virtual convention uh, about this last year. Uh, but really, the last brick and mortar convention that I've displayed at, I did a gameplay counselor museum exhibit at Portland Retro Gaming Expo 2019, and so it's been it's been a little while, and I'm really eager to get out there again. So, not too long ago, you did a uh, live stream of the gameplay counselor shelf and uh, showed off things like a little Elmo statue, and sure, that that was a good way of getting around the whole you know location situation. Sure. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of what my my Twitter account was sort of born out of that necessity. Right. Like this, like, hey, I'm amassing all this stuff and I have no way to show it to people. Um, And so uh, so Twitter has really been an an outlet for me to uh, to get the the art and production materials and stuff like that out there. I'm confused and surprised that so much of this is out there and not locked in a vault somewhere at Nintendo headquarters. The yeah. sheer amount that that wasn't behind their doors is is amazing to me. And how did that come about? There's a very practical reason for that. Uh, the way that you contract artists, or at least the way that they did back then, the way that their contracts were were negotiated, if you wanted the image rights for art, that was one price. If you wanted to keep the art physically, you had to pay extra. <laughs> so Nintendo, nine times out of ten, just didn't pay the extra right and so the art was then returned to the artist um now there's a million reasons why something could happen to it after that like mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. in some cases the artist has passed away um or you know they gave it to their kids and the kids didn't care and threw it away or it just got you know um nobody knew especially like in the early days of the magazine nobody nobody knew that like nintendo or video games at large would be what they are today or that anyone would care and so a lot of times you know like 
especially like the big clay models they did for some of the earlier uh, pieces. Like I, I have a number of them, but uh, the particularly large ones, like the Maniac Mansion Mansion is a perfect example, right? That was like a 200 pound piece of polymer clay, a very large piece. And to a contract artist at the time in 1989 or whatever it was, um, they it was just this thing that was taking up space in their in their in their workspace, right? They weren't thinking like, oh, I should save this, and in 35 years, a guy's gonna come along and offer me thousands of dollars for it. You know, like there was no there was no thought process like that. It was just, I'm done with this thing. I've gotten paid for it, and it needs to get out of here, right? So like that particular piece, sadly, was destroyed very shortly after they shot the photos of it for the cover. Um, but um, a lot of these artists, I think, uh, were just kind of really meticulous about their portfolios. And like, you know, it's not just, um, you know, like I'll, I'll find like when I found Dan McGowan, uh, his estate, you know, like he had he was a commercial artist for 30 years. And so not only did he do or for 30, 40 years, not only did he do these covers, but he has, you know, in 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 his his storage, you know, his his estate still had like, you know, paintings for herbal essences tea boxes and just like just it was just cataloged they just cataloged it well um and uh well and some of it also came down to like being able to prove rights of ownership right so like if they um you know if if they were contracted like i i i i was contracted to make this image for a mug right and that retailer puts it on the mug but then i'll puts it on a bunch of other stuff right like in that litigious process where you're like, hey, that's not what I was, the, what they hired me to do. Having the, the physical asset would be helpful, and so, um, and so, uh, so yeah. A, a lot of times that that's how it was saved, just for just out of out of just kind of record keeping. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, at the same time, a lot of it was destroyed. You know, I came across the one of the folks that was uh, the layout artist for the magazine for a number of years who actually would actually take the images and paste together the actual page what the page actually looked like so she had these like pay they're called paste ups and it would be in like an oversized version of the page that was like put together with glue sticks right um she had thousands of these pages and at one point she showed them to her kids and they didn't care and she recycled them about two years before i found her so like there is this less so now, I think now, because like especially with things like the like one point five million dollar Mario 64 sale and like all these like crazy numbers are coming up. Um, people are getting more and more on board with like, oh, my God, this is something that I should be keeping and and say, you know, and and selling. Um, but uh, but yeah, for for the longest time, you know, it was just a matter of the artist got paid for their thing and when it was done they just tossed it out you know and that's sort of why i'll never know when i'm finished with this project right i can i would never know first of all nintendo is not i'm sure the amount of artwork that nintendo is holding is not zero right mm -hmm. it's something i don't know how much it is they aren't going to be forthcoming let's be honest <laughs> um and uh and and so i don't i don't know what they have they you know, less or more than zero. They have more than zero. Uh, and then, but at the same time, I would never know what pieces 
were thrown away versus me just not being able to find them, especially when it comes to, you know, estates, you know, after the artist had passed, especially a lot of these Japanese artists for the Japanese team, they were using seasoned manga artists from, from Japan. And, and a lot of those, those folks were, you know, in their fifties at the time, you know? And so, uh, so Japan has been a, a very particular challenge for me. Um, because not just the language barrier and the geographic barrier, those both things are true, but, uh, but also just the, um, you know, not being able to find these artists who also often used the Japanese team used a lot of, um, fake names. You know, they would have their, their, their pen name that they would, that they would use for the magazine. And so like, I don't know who half these people are because they used spoon for their first name, which is true. There's an artist that uses spoon for their. First I'm name. not surprised. Um, or uh, hige hige, which is like the it's it's the um, onomatopoeia for uh, a heartbeat, um, and so uh, or one of them. Um, and so so yeah, there there's some of these folks are just very very difficult to find, or some of them are like so stratospherically famous now at this point that like they aren't really touchable or that you know uh or their art isn't available um you know these these folks who had who went on to become very famous manga artists or uh like for instance the gentleman and he's passed away now but the gentleman who uh drew the legend of zelda uh comic in nintendo power magazine uh was the same gentleman who created uh the power rangers franchise or uh, the um well, common writer too, but like that whole genre—I forget what it's called. Uh, the is Sentai. It, uh, yeah, Sentai. Thank you, Super Sentai. He's the creator of Super Sentai, um, and he passed away actually shortly before the or shortly after the 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 comic was published. But like, but yeah, so a lot of these folks were are like stratospherically famous in Japan, and so it makes it also very difficult to track down. Now I'm wondering. Toward the middle range of the the comics, the, the book, the magazine's lifespan, um, you know, when you get into the Super Nintendo era, toward this N64 era, the big issue, the one that was like Christmas part two, was the January bonus issue that would actually come in a sack full of stuff with extra catalogs and goodies. Was there anything of significance on the back end of that from the production point of view that you found? Um, I mean, I have. You? there's the that's the cover for uh for what that was one issues. of them yeah mm -hmm. um it's actually my favorite cover that's why it's in my office um but uh yeah i mean there's just a lot of stuff actually that's volume 44 the uh the magical quest issue um just by happenstance that actually is the issue that i have the most art for um i have i have like a, a lot of the art from that from that issue but um as far as like challenges though like i don't i don't think there was anything in particular anything particularly challenging about those issues only that there's so much content right that um but a lot of it by then actually surprisingly they were already going digital um there were really uh, yeah so but that would have been like like some of the earliest versions of photoshop <laughs> were being <laughs> used um but yeah um there were there were some artists that they were contracting that uh that that were working in digital as early as as issue 44. 
And that now I'm thinking I'm starting to come together. Now that you're talking about that was about the time that the the logo changed for the first time and took on kind of a almost pseudo 3D look. There was there that a coincidence? Was did that uh, no? That was actually that was that would have still been a couple years later. That would have been around issue 69. I'm it's somewhere in that range, uh, in that in that N64 transition. Um, but. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, it, it, I think some of the Star Fox maps were also uh, computer generated. Um, so yeah, they were they were they were working with uh, with digital media pretty pretty early on. I was actually s- surprised at how early uh, they uh, they uh, were working. In fact, the um, in issue forty four, the um, the R wing they have the the Star Fox uh, papercraft. I don't know if you recall that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, in the back, it's just you know, it's like a, a cutout. You know, you can put together one of the R wings from Star Fox. That was digitally uh, created. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. The digital stuff, honestly, is harder to find. Um, uh, so because you know these guys have like these ancient hard drives that just die, right? Um, and so most of the time, when I've talked to digital artists, that is a hundred percent the case, or very very close to a hundred percent the case, where. They go, oh yeah, I did have some stuff on a hard drive, uh, and it died. Like, and then, and that's oh. the end of the story. Um, so, you know, people like Frank Zafaldi get on my case for I mean, jovially. He's he's joking, but uh, get uh, gets on my case for uh, how disproportionately I display traditional artwork, and I kind of go back to him like, well, if you find me digital art, I'm happy to show it. Um, but uh, it's just finding those pieces that's that's very difficult because of the nature of old hard drives. It's why I'm always a fan of redundant backups upon redundant backups on different forms of media, different physical locations. I I have learned the hard way many years ago, and I I just back up everything like crazy. Yeah, almost almost the whole traditional archive. There are some pieces that are not... I'm, I'm working on getting a a very large format scanner but those are very expensive mm-hmm. um and so uh because i won't put them in a drum scanner because drum scanning is really how you would do like the very large formats or like a feed scanner or something like that but i with original paintings i can't risk that right mm-hmm. um so uh so aside from some of the very large pieces like the castlevania 4 painting is very very large it's a it's actually an oil painting um uh, I have everything digitally backed up and in multiple locations. Um, but, uh, but yeah, cause I mean, this is, I, you know, I'd like to say I'm the safest place, you know, but like nothing's impervious to fire, right? Like nothing's impervious to those kinds of things. So like, God forbid my house burned down. Um, you know, the collection is very well insured, you know, that's at least okay. But like, still, I would rather have my, I would rather have my art than money. Mm-hmm. Um, Clearly, because I spend all my money on the art. So, um, so, uh, but yeah, so um, I don't even know where I was going with that. Well, that's, that's all right. It's just, that's okay. Well, I'm yeah, Frank has actually been on the show too. And, and I would have to have the same conversation, you know, with you that I'm having with him is that this stuff is more interesting than the people who have gone for full sets of games because that's, like you said, that's not that hard to do. Yeah. It's just and, expensive. Yeah. It's but it's the history that you find in going through that those time capsules of old magazines, old records of of what what things were actually like at the time. Like people take for granted now that they have a hundred different sources for information on video games. 
back then you had the official magazine, you had maybe a third party magazine, and the people get the schoolyard. That was yeah. it. Yep. Yeah. yeah, you know, it was funny. We were talking about uh, the people kept it, you know, when the when the $1.5 million Mario 64 recently sold, people were in my inbox asking, like, oh, like, what percentage of your archive could you have bought for $1.5 million? And I was like, all of it, five times. Like, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, it's not, I put in the sweat equity for this art, right? It's not, you know, do I get it for free? No. Like I said, I think I've probably spent somewhere in the neighborhood of like $380,000 on, 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 on like almost, you know, three, 350 pieces of art. Right. So that's, that's not that bad, but when you, when you, when you get down to it, but, um, but at the same time, you know, I, uh, it, it, God, sorry, I lost my train of thought. What was I just talking about? Sorry. It's You're been a very just talking long day. about how, how you you put in the sweat equity to get the oh, art. Oh right, yeah. And... So, um, so yeah, the it it's it's I don't I don't typically buy from auction houses. I don't typically buy from from collectors. Usually, I'm I'm hunting down the artist, you know, at its source. And so, you know, um, I certainly don't get this art for free. But I'm also not paying 1.5 million dollars in an auction house. So, um, it's there's 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 a lot of gray area between there. So, mm-hmm. um. You know, uh, you know, to, to to my critics who think that I'm like e-begging and like getting most of the stuff gifted, that is also not true. Um, but uh, but you know, I'm I'm not I'm not paying crazy crazy amounts of dollars for it either. You know, or at least not what I think is crazy when comparing it to like an N64 game for over a million dollars. I that's a whole other conversation. I'm convinced that those are not real prices in the grand scheme of things. They're there. That's it's it's a once or twice and it, this year is going to be weird and when this year stops being weird those prices go away but that's a different yeah. conversation uh, but i'm amazed anybody could be critical of this because in, in my opinion this is one of those things that is nothing but good for everybody involved um let's see some topics that i get critics of um a lot of it uh, comes down to people like I said, I'm a black hole, like because yeah. of my 501c3, essentially the way that I structure, you know, I've structured my will, that kind of thing. Like once these pieces are in this collection, uh, they don't leave <laughs> like and and like, you know, once they certainly once they are actually property of the of the nonprofit, um, they can't leave. Essentially, they'd have to be just they'd have to be given to another nonprofit. Um, but uh so I get a lot of flack from other art collectors who uh, who basically want an opportunity for the art themselves at some point, right? Um, so that that's where I get um, a lot of of that. Um, I also get people who think that it should go to a brick and mortar museum now, right? People who are just like, oh no, you should just donate this all to the strong or donate this all to you know a, a game, uh, you know a, a, some other museum um and my pushback on that and it, you know they're not wrong it, it's not like it would be a bad home like i'm not saying mm-hmm, i'm not saying mm-hmm. anything against brick and mortar museums what i personally don't like about brick and mortar museums is that they only have so much physical space so mm-hmm. if i gave them this intense size of a collection how much over the course of a year how likely is any particular piece uh how, how likely is it that any particular piece will get shown Right. So like, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's going to spend the collection is going to spend most of its time in the back room in mm -hmm. cold storage, right? Waiting to be displayed or waiting for an archivist to come want to look at it, right? Um, so also if you put the collection at a central location, then people who are interested in want to see the work have to go to it, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the way that I've structured my organization, traveling to different shows, that kind of thing, people around the country and maybe, I don't know, someday globally, if I figure out how to ship this stuff safely, um, uh, people around the country will be able to see it at some point without having to go that far, right? That's the idea. And so, I don't know, someday, will it, will will some or all of it end up in a brick and mortar museum? Probably, maybe, I'm not sure. But, but I'm certainly not ready to send it there now because I feel like it's part of my mission um, to make sure that the maximum amount of people who want to see the work are able to see the work. Um, so that is that is my beef. Not even beef. I have you know, there's plenty of people who are who who are friends of mine who do work in the museum field. So, um, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, so it's not it's not it's not a uh, it's not a criticism. It's just why I am not comfortable just being like, oh, I'm going to buy this thing and then walk it over to the museum immediately, right? Like I, I, I'm not done with it yet, <laughs> right? What the criticisms you're hearing, I would say, are it's just ignorance, and I mean that in the in the least negative manner possible. It's just ignorance of knowing how the museum industry works, and I say that as somebody who plans his vacations around going to museums. I mean, that's that's what I, I love to do, but what they show is at best a tenth of what they have, and that's any museum you'll ever see in your entire life. It's they're, they're in the exact same boat, yeah. so you're doing the right thing. Yeah, I'm not mad at them. Like I said, no, it's a, no. I mean, there's there's very logistical sane reasons why they have to operate the way that they operate right mm -hmm. um but uh but yeah it's not it's just not it's not time for for this collection to be anywhere permanently yet so when you're talking to artists and reaching out for people who have you know access to this art you had said you had been talking to game counselors as well mm -hmm. how many of those have you run across in your day mm, almost 300 all right. Um, but, but okay. To be fair, I spend all of my free time on this, right? Like when I say that this is my life's work, it really is. Like I, uh, so it's not. I'm not saying that what I do is magic. It's not. Um, it's just persistence. I spend all of my time doing this, and it's mm -hmm. all and so much about it is networking, right? Like to get up to that like. 300 number you know for a while it was like finding one person and then that person knew two people and then you know it's the pyramid scheme right um my 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 network uh spidered out that way right and that's that's how i've located so many artists that were uncredited right because the magazine very poorly credited artists um and like for instance cover artists uh, aside from the first few issues um, were not credited at all. It was credited by uh, Griffiths Advertising, the, the advertising firm. So um, so finding artists who are uncredited was 100% networking, right? I just had to like find someone who happened to know a person who also drew for the magazine, you know? So um, so yeah, all of it is, 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 is uh, you know, and, and for all of the like counselors that are in the counselor corner, like listed in the magazine, 
um, you know, there were hundreds that weren't right because at any given time at the peak of that at the peak of the gameplay counselor department they had over 300 test or they had over 300 counselors um on the floor simultaneously and of course there was churn to that and there was seasonality to that right so you're talking about you know thousands maybe tens of thousands of of counselors over the years um so uh so yeah um it's 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 not just you know finding someone in a magazine and 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 hunting them down although some of their some of it is that right like i've gotten very good at um figuring out what somebody looks like 30 years later right um but uh but yeah so that's 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 how that outreach really works i'd always wondered because you know when i was a kid i thought it must be this incredibly cool job then i ended up working at a call center and i changed my mind on that topic but i always wondered if they found people who had like especially great skills with kids because of you know i was had that number on speed dial when i was little so they must have been talked to so many kids each day yeah well and that's why like uh, i don't know if you've um if you've seen the the counselor binders that i have right the the physical binders that the counselors would would pull their like maps from and that kind of thing most of those maps were hand drawn by the counselors um and a lot of them got good at map drawing because it was an excuse to not be on the phones um and uh nice. or like you know correspondence was a very uh was a very popular department as well um that you could get cross-trained in as a gameplay counselor you could also be so writing answering letters was a completely different skill set completely different department um but you could get cross-trained as as a counselor and so like people would try to get into correspondence because writing letters to children was better than talking to them all the time um not, not to say that there isn't like you know a, a swath of counselors who who loved it right and that, mm -hmm. that they really did enjoy talking to kids but like but yeah you know and 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 some of it wasn't you know necessarily just like answering real quick questions sometimes it was answering a question on a game that you know didn't have a save so they had to work x amount of time you know that like there was a there was a, a you know a very big dedicated chunk of time like legacy of the wizard was a, was one of the 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 less popular games for counselors to answer questions on or you know sometimes these kids because like for this especially for the seattle kids because locally it, it, it the 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 number for the hotline especially at first was just a local call so if you lived in the area it was free mm -hmm. um and so or cheap um and so uh a lot of these kids they especially at the time right like it wasn't video games wasn't uh as uh popular with like parents and that kind of thing or even like uh, the you know, other peers it wasn't unheard of to meet kids who didn't play video games right and so a lot of these kids would call in just wanting to talk to someone who spoke their language so they didn't even necessarily have a question they just wanted to talk to someone who understood what they were interested in um, and and you'll you'll hear a lot of stories like that from counselors as well, um, wow. but uh, but yeah, they they certainly did take a lot of phone calls though. That is that is true. Usually, so I have I have one of the aspect telephones that they used in the call center, mm -hmm. and when I show that to counselors, they almost all almost always they say that they get like chills looking at the phone. Um, just I had made a discovery on my aspect headset that there was a certain wire in the second jack that if I put the tip of my pen on there, I could no longer hear the person on the phone, but they could still hear me. Oh, uh, funny. Oh, yes. And I learned to abuse that like crazy. That's really funny. Okay. But seriously, buddy, I really appreciate you talking to me here. And this has been, there are so many things going through my head right now. Sure. 
but I want to make sure that people have a chance to access all this. So where can people follow your exhibit and your postings and your social media? Sure. So uh, on Twitter, it's Art of NP. Honestly, if you just Google Art of Nintendo Power, I, you know, Art, Art, Art of Nintendo Power is very good SEO, right? It's, it's so um, so uh, if you, you follow me on Twitter at, at Art, of, Art of NP or just search for Art of Nintendo Power. Um, on Instagram, it's Art of Nintendo Power with underscores between each word. Um, on, uh, on YouTube, it's also Art of Nintendo Power. Um, I think that's all I want, where I want to send you. That's generally will keep you up to date. Um, I also, I'm, I'm spinning up a Twitter account for the nonprofit. So basically the Art of Nintendo Power brand, obviously I can't have a nonprofit with the word Nintendo in it. So, um, so the interactive art collection, uh, I do have a Twitter account for it, but it's just kind of a placeholder right now. There will, there also will be an interactiveartcollection.org, um, but that is also all the, all the nonprofit stuff has been like, I just got my tax ID like the other day. So, um, so, uh, you know, the IRS only moves quickly if you owe them money. So it's been a very long, it's been a very long process. So, but, uh, but yeah, you know, on, on YouTube and Twitter, especially, especially if you want to like interact with me, if you want to ask me questions, Twitter is the place to do it. Um, or Instagram as well. So that's, I'm going to go ahead and put that if everything there in the show notes at AaronVosick.com. I would like to have you back and look at, talk about a whole bunch more stuff because I am a huge Nintendo fanatic and you are talking my language. Sure, man. I, you know, I've also worked professionally in the game industry for 20 years. So, um, I'm, 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 I'm a wealth of information when it comes to the game industry. I like wealths. I like wealths a lot. I would like to thank Stefan for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. If you've listened to this episode, I have to think that you are a big fan of Nintendo, or at least that you have a strong interest in the history of video games. If that's the case, think of your favorite Nintendo imagery, iconic Nintendo power covers, like the Clay Mario from issue number one, or the Castlevania uh, Dracula's head cover that we discussed earlier, all those amazing images, and you might have the chance to see them in person at the Megabit Game Expo on September 12th, 2021 in Simi Valley, California. Stefan is going to be exhibiting some Nintendo Power art at this exhibit, and this is your chance to get up close and personal. This might be a good way to put in a community building tip here. If you have the geographic ability to go to this convention, I would suggest doing so. It's only one day. If you can't get there for whatever reason, check the show notes and follow Stefan on social media. Check out some of the amazing art pieces he has scanned and archived and send the few links to your friends. I'm sure you might have some friends who are also Nintendo fans and who would appreciate getting that blast from the past seeing these iconic images. Remember, if you're listening to Hungry Trilobite, you're probably a little more enthusiastic about checking this stuff out, and other people out there might not know this stuff exists. Why not share it with them? You could subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.